Scott Carpenter was one of the Mercury 7 astronauts and the second American to orbit the planet in a spacecraft, but his mission is often recalled incorrectly, and we've been trying to set the record straight. And today we continue to do this by talking to his daughter, Christova, and researcher Danny Parker to learn about a new book Danny is working on about this very subject. We love hearing from you, so please let us know what you think. You can do this via our social media pages at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram, Threads, and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us over at patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, enjoy episode 165 of the Space and Things Podcast. listening to the Space and Things podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 165 of the Space and Things podcast. I'm still away in the US this week, so this episode was pre-recorded a few weeks back, but I'm back next week and we'll have a full update on what's been catching our eye in spaceflight while I've been away. But today we have a very special interview, so let's just get on with it. Yes, today we're joined by Chris Stover, who is the daughter of Mercury 7 astronaut Scott Carpenter. 20 years ago, she released a book with her father called For Spacious Skies, and it's a really wonderful read. We're also joined by researcher Danny Parker, who's working on a brand new book about this. So some background here. We covered this topic in episode 96 to mark the 60th anniversary of MA7, which was the flight of Scott Carpenter. It was the fourth crewed flight of Project Mercury, which was the United States' first human spaceflight program running from 1958 to 1963. Its primary goal was to put an American astronaut into orbit around the Earth and return them safely. On May the 5th, 1961, astronaut Alan Shepard became the first American in space on board the Freedom 7 spacecraft, making a suborbital flight that lasted 15 minutes. It was followed a couple of months later by a second suborbital flight by Gus Grissom, before John Glenn became the first American to orbit the planet in February 1962. During John Glenn's flight, he observed something outside his window, which he thought looked like fireflies surrounding his spacecraft. And as you can imagine at the time, people were quite confused by this. Carpenter wasn't originally supposed to be on the fourth flight of Project Mercury. Dick Slayton was meant to be in the capsule, but got grounded due to an irregular heartbeat. As we mentioned in episode 96, this swap happened quite late in the preparation for the flight. Throughout the early uncrewed test flights and John Glenn's flight, there were problems with the Automatic Stabilization and Control System, ASCS. And these problems also occurred in Carpenter's flight on May 24th, 1962. As a result, he had to manually control his re-entry and there were concerns with his fuel levels at the time. He did make it safely back to Earth, but overshot his landing site due to those issues, and he had to wait five hours to get rescued. Yeah, there have been many myths associated with this, some which suggested that Carpenter was to blame for that. And the biggest source of these myths comes from the Project Mercury flight director, Chris Craft, and his book, Flight, which we're going to now discuss. So let's find out exactly what happened from the experts. Welcome, Chris and Danny. Thank you very much for joining this week. This is a topic we have covered before, so I want to get straight into the nuts and bolts of this. How did 
the two of you meet and get started on this. From our correspondence, it certainly feels like it's such a huge research project. So was, was that how it all came about? I'm a research scientist at the University of Central Florida. And I actually work at the Florida Solar Energy Center. And uh, there I studied, I studied machines and uh, machines that hopefully can help humanity live in an easier way. But one of the fascinations I've had, not only in that, is with the idea of space exploration for my entire, I was going to say my adult life, but it's, it's actually way beyond that. Because even when I was a kid, I was fascinated by Project Mercury. And I met Chris through the, the fact that I was uh, kind of obsessed with uh, trying to understand what makes machines work better in the service of people. And then how one can go wrong if you decide that you want to give over control completely to the machine uh, rather than the pilot. And uh, to allow the pilot to have some say turns out to be very important. I think still today, even with uh, the very best automatic systems, but in the time of Project Mercury, it was really kind of obvious. And then when I was a young man, I thought, well, maybe I will write about Project Mercury because I'm a writer and I like to write. And I found the great illustration of the problem of giving over control from the pilot to the ground or to machines and the flights of John Glenn and Sky Carpenter. And so I came in contact with Chris. I said, well, I, I read your book, you know, at least now I don't have to think about writing a book about Scott Carpenter or Project Mercury. And she said, oh, no, there's a lots and lots of things we don't understand very well. And a lot of them have to do with technical details. And I said, oh, I love that. So it's three years later and I've been working on this book. It's called Aurora. And since I'm a researcher, I've, we've been digging really deep into uh, everything I can find out about Project Mercury as a reappraisal. And then also re reappraisal of uh, the flight itself of Scott Carpenter, MA7, in uh, May 1962. I'm really having fun with it. The research project that just keeps on giving. This brings us to uh, my question here. Um, as we know, as many of us know who listen to this podcast, spaceflight is full of myths and legends. And one of the biggest myths involves Scott Carpenter's Aurora 7 flight and how and why it ended the way it did. So first, why do you both think uh, this story of, and I hate this, I hate this phrase, but quote, the man malfunctioning, even though it's been debunked and it's continue and it's going to continue to be debunked with your new book, why do you think this is so attractive to some? There were a couple of things that play in May 1962. One was the enormous excitement around orbital flight, honed to a very fine edge by John Glenn's success in space, the emotions of the time, the space race, the deadly stakes uh, at the peak of the Cold War, and the overwhelming presence of a dynamic young president in John F. Kennedy. And everyone was vying for his attention for federal dollars, the mini victory within the space program that would feed into larger geopolitical victories. So at the time, in the moment, because of the confusion, first of where my dad initially was for about five hours, it was five hours 
delay in the pickup, but they knew where he was within about two hours. So there's the confusion in the moment and then absolute joy elation. Isn't this exciting? Look at our hero. What brave Americans, another victory in space. And then it was really, in terms of press attention, it was really on to before the machine itself had been analyzed for malfunction. It was really on to Wally Shepard's light in October and the preparations for that. So the insidious nature of the malfunction, which was difficult to implicate in the overshoot initially, created opportunities for bad-mouthing. Bad-mouthing that happened at a very stealthy level, and then as institutional politics took place, because we're moving from Langley Air Force Base to Houston in that very moment. And people aren't at their desks. And people are jockeying for the best offices and for, and, and the carpenters are in Colorado on vacation. And people established a narrative that would create a trajectory for their future careers at NASA at the expense, say, of Carpenter, who uh, wasn't much of an infighter. Yeah, I'd say he wasn't an infighter at all. Scott Carpenter had faith that if you performed well and you did so with a genuine motivation, that it would eventually be recognized and uh, you would be rewarded for that. There were problems with uh, Capsule 18, and the two largest problems, there were some others, but the two largest problems were the pitch horizon scanner was malfunctioning, and it was sporadic, the worst kind of problem. And then the the other was that a new system for controlling the high-thrust thrusters had been added about three and a half weeks prior to launch. Uh, it's called double authority, which was John Glenn had mentioned that uh, he felt that the thrusters in his flight had seemed, quote, mushy. And so the McDonald engineers said, oh, we can fix that. And the way to fix that was to um, gang the high thrust and low thrust thrusters together so that you move the stick, the control stick, more than just slightly. You would engage essentially a hot rod mode, is what I would call it. It's what it really, double authority was hot rod mode. But there really had been no training with this. And I'm sure on the ground, I haven't found the, the, the archival trace of it, but, I, but um, I will. There was awareness pretty early on that that system was a problem. And in fact, it was changed. It was the number one thing to change between Wally Shiraz's capsule and Scott Carpenter's capsule was to provide a switch to turn off double authority because... It was found to waste fuel at a prodigious rate. So those two problems fed into each other. And then the other thing to be aware of is that Scott Carpenter was determined to complete the science that John Glenn had been unable to do because of trouble with the ASCS system in his flight. He was determined that he would follow the flight plan that he'd worked up with people both at NASA and also people at MIT to make uh, MA7 a real science mission rather than just an engineering test mission. And that meant a lot of manual control, and that was in the flight plan. Of course, 
using the manual control, you're going to be using a lot of fuel to be able to carry out maneuvers for the photography elements and for the other things. So much so that the ground control warned Carpenter and the possible the second orbit that he needed to conserve fuel. And this he did. In researching Scott's life, I'm kind of impressed by his skills as a horse rider. He knew how to hold the reins to allow the horse just to move along without any particular uh, effort. And with the capsule, he just put it in drift mode. He said, this is really quite nice. Of course, he was unable to complete some of the science in the flight plan because of that, but he was using no fuel during that time. Yeah, He enjoyed drifting flight. And he said, you know, there was concern that you, that the astronaut might be disoriented or would have some trouble with motion sickness because of the concerns from the, the Soviet Titov flight. But he said, I had, I had no problem at all. It was quite enjoyable. And it was, it was enjoyable to find yourself facing various directions and so forth. But when it was time during the third orbit to prepare the capsule for re-entry, he accidentally struck the side of the, the hatch while moving some items inside the capsule. And when he struck it, a shower of little fireflies came out glistening in the sun from sunrise and then he was fascinated with this. Of course, everybody was fascinated. And it turns out that regardless of what anyone says, everyone down to the hardest, hard-nosed engineers in the project were really concerned about finding out about what this phenomenon was about. And so Carpenter felt, I have just figured this out. This is coming from whacking on, it's coming from the side of the capsule and he whacked on it and he was able to create showers of them uh, as he was approaching Hawaii. The problem was, you know, he was... Uh, to be going through the pre-retrofire checklist during that time. And so he was behind when he reached Hawaii. And then he turned on the automatic system. Remember, he'd been drifting. And when he turned it on, it promptly faced the capsule down. <laughs> down enough so that you were just kind of staring at the earth below. And it's like you're supposed to be canted at a 34-degree angle before retrofire. That's where the problems began. Scott Carpenter was determined to follow his nose relative to being an explorer. He wanted to explore where he was. He wasn't interested in just the machine. He loved machines the same way, I guess, that he loved horses too. On the other hand, the horse is going to take you to a, a place where you can pioneer, where you can learn something new. And he felt that the Mercury capsule was going to take him to a new world and he was going to find out what this world was like. And that was his motivation. He was determined to do science and he felt that he would be rewarded for that fact. It worked kind of the opposite way after, especially from Chris Kraft, he was, was done for his performance when in fact the astronaut trainer, Dr. Robert Bose said, it's just the opposite. He saved the mission. He demonstrated the value of human beings in space because without him there, retrofire would have been ineffective and it the spacecraft would have been either still in orbit or would have overshot even longer. Would, would that suggest that Scott actually took an element of risk into trying to complete those tasks, knowing that he perhaps was going to be a little bit late, but also that he salvaged it? There's a footnote for MA7, and that's a significant one. Dad had 10 weeks to train for MA7 because it was Deke Slayton's flight. 
And Deke Slayton had taken on a science mission. And Deke wasn't happy about the science mission. So the nice thing about MA7 is that the astronaut who eventually flew the mission was actually excited about science. And I don't know uh, what would have happened. I mean, the question is what, what risks were involved in Slayton flying a science mission? Maybe better to have uh, an astronaut like Carpenter fly a science mission. You know, the training is so, was so incessant and so exquisite, and the risks of failure so profound, like death. Yeah. Scott Carpenter knew exactly how many seconds he had to determine uh, the nature of the fireflies, which he renamed Frostflies after the mission. And he was prompted a couple of times by Capcom in Hawaii. And he said, I know, I know. And he, all he had to do was put some items in the ditty bag and get into retro attitude. That's all he had to do. Yeah. And he knew he had time to do that. What he did not expect, as Danny has parsed out meticulously, was uh, for retro attitude to be so broken. It was really broken. And then because he had taken extra seconds, I think, you know, we're, we're talking about, we're not talking about a lot of time, but a test pilot is used to this kind of circumstance where, yeah. you know, you're dealing with very short periods of time that are determining how you're going to be and how the machine's going to be and whether you will survive. And Scott Carpenter knew even during re-entry, there's a, some very eloquent things that he wrote later about how he felt during re-entry, knowing that some things had been off. He still felt extremely proud and happy, and he felt like even if he didn't make it because he was so low on fuel, he had done it just the way he wanted to do it. And if you understand what happened with the automatic system, once the automatic system failed, and there was a very short period of time to try to put the capsule into retro attitude, since the ASCS system was malfunctioning, he fought with it to try to put it back into retro attitude and then... Alan Shepard over California suggested something that we'd all know today. It's not called that then. Turn it off and turn it on again. <laughs> turn the ASCS off and then turn it back on. Now we call that a cold boot. So yeah. Carpenter agreed to do that. He did that and it promptly put the attitude of the spacecraft facing down again. So he, he says to uh, Shepard, we're going to have to do this manually and Shepard basically says, okay, you can do it. So he tells him, remember that you have to select bypass for certain things to be able to get the retrofire sequencer to go off automatically and probably save a carpenter a few seconds with that because he had not remembered that at this point. And he'd also fought with the ASCS system between Hawaii and California and burned up a lot of fuel that way and had left the manual system on with fly-by-wire on at the same time. This was was the only mistake that I can find that he made, and the aide readily admitted. But we're not talking about an average situation. Uh, we're yeah. talking about a crisis situation for a pilot. And so you can say, well, one should never make mistakes. This is a good plan. But if you're in a, a situation where it's you're under extreme time pressure 
and you have multiple things going wrong at once, you're fortunate to be able to pull things off. Someone once said to John Young, what, if, what would you do if you had this serious problem and this serious problem and this serious problem? Young said, I'd relax because there's no reason to die tense. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you can make up circumstances that are not recoverable for a pilot. But Carpenter was confident uh, in, in the wisdom of Max Baget, uh, who said that with very little fuel use, the Mercury capsule, if you had the blunt end forward, it would assume proper reentry attitude. He was confident that Baget was right. And he would, Carpenter was proud of this later. He said, I proved Baget right. <laughs> I proved <laughs> I love that. it was right. So where do the problems with Chris Craft start then? And, and is mission control to blame for that in any way? Their reaction to what was going on while Scott was in space? Anything that we can read into that at all? To be honest, Kraft himself said, and it's also in his book, but it's also in all over the place in the documentation, that up through the third orbit, MA7 was the most successful flight flown thus far in Mercury. Everything was being done extremely well. The higher fuel consumption than anticipated over the first orbit was a problem, but then that had been recouped from drifting flight, and there was about 40, 42% both automatic and manual fuel remaining at that point, which is, if you look back at Glenn's flight, precisely the amount of fuel he had at that point, too. Mm. So what caused him to change his mind about uh, MA7 and Scott Carpenter's performance? In my mind, it's because on the ground, there was panic set in after the problem over Hawaii. You need to know about where he came from and the engineering profession that the way it was applied in his earlier career. He was part of the pilotless aircraft research division. So basically, the machine was supposed to be automatic. And with Mercury, that was very important that the machine be automatic. But it failed. The automatic machine failed. The automatic machine actually had problems. And, it, and actually, if you look back, and, and either of you can quickly do this, you'll find that there were problems in each orbital flight. With Enos, the chimp, they had to bring him down in orbit early because the ASCS system started malfunctioning and fuel use was high. Hmm, funny thing. And then in Glenn's flight, the ASCS system malfunctioned, and he had to give up on a large part of the flight plan. Same, similar problems again. Uh, and in a carpenter's flight, this again, but with the events over Hawaii and California uh, associated with retrofire and difficulty and controlling the attitude of the capsule, panic set in in mercury control. There are various reasons for this, and some of them dealing with early tele telemetry of the biomedical telemetry that Stan White was receiving in Mercury Control showed some erroneous data. And then also Carpenter was fond of a way of dealing with high G on reentry. I don't know if you both know about this, but he would tighten his abdominal muscles and bark like a seal. <laughs> and this was very effective at keeping blood in your head. And it was actually wow. called the Carpenter Bark is uh, or the carpenter wow. grunt by dr william douglas but anyway 
guess what it did to the telemetry data? It created really strange things to see on the telemetry data. So they were looking at the telemetry while he's coming back. And it's like, is he having a heart attack? Is he dying? What's happening? Wow. <laughs> and I think Kraft even writes about this. Look, he, he writes about, you know, there was concern that was Carpenter having a heart attack? He wasn't having a heart attack. Carpenter was fine. He was just dealing with high G forces the way he did. And then after, of course, and he did say, he did say that son of a bitch will never fly for me again. He did say that. That was overheard by others at Mercury Control that I've interviewed. And he was very proud of that. He was determined that the control was going to lie with the ground and not with the astronaut. And he had also the terrible fight with Werner von Braun on this point who said, you've got to be crazy. If astronauts are at the moon, there's like a, more than a second delay in terms of radio transmissions. And at Mars, you're talking about long periods of time. The astronaut, the pilot, must make the decision. And Kraft never yielded on that point. But he was very vehement that, you know, he wanted the control to remain with uh, mission control and not with the astronaut. And, and if you crossed him, he would get rid of you. Yeah, I won't get too far into this because it'll make me mad. <laughs> My blood pressure is up. Carpenter does not get a fair shake if you read certain space memoirs that we've referenced so, thus far. But he was actually probably one of the more intellectually and physically prepared Mercury 7 astronauts. I, I think he was probably in the best shape of all the Mercury 7 guys, honestly. So tell us a little bit about how uniquely qualified he was to, to make this space flight. I'll say a few words first to take some of the hyperbole out of my dad's fitness. John Glenn was amazingly fit. This has been corroborated more recently just with uh, Danny's research on the selection process. And dad pulled down some high scores in, in the cardiovascular, the, uh, some of the cardiovascular tests. Um, he was a great gymnast. He was coordinated. He trained all the time because he knew that training would save him in any situation. You train, you train, you train. And that discipline, uh, not any of his inherent physical or intellectual attributes, it was his discipline and his devotion to training that saved MA7. As Chris knows, her father actually loved a challenge. And his upbringing uh, on the Rocky Mountain front, his grandfather, you know, had imbued him with this idea that if the going is tough, then it's, it's good. Yeah. You just rise to that. And he was extremely fit, but he wasn't so much more fit than some of the other candidates. Like Chris mentions, John Glenn was in very good shape. Another candidate, Robert Soliday, was uh, another Marine, the other Marine candidate. They kind of had a friendly competition <laughs> at Lovelace and Wright Patterson um, to see who would do better. And they were all pretty amazing in terms of what they did. And remember, Carpenter is a Navy guy. Uh, and the, the people he's hanging out with and he's deciding he really he likes them, he digs, and they dig him, is they're Marines. Now, the Air Force guys were kind of flabby, to be honest. Let's be honest here about that. They were, 
you know, so there was not this training method within the Air Force. Your stature was measured on how well you were flew. And after how much you could drink. And how much you could drink. Thank you for re- reminding us of that. In the Navy, how much you could drink was important, too. Then, yes, very important. But anyway, he was in very good shape. He loved taking care of the human body. And, and as Chris knows, he had even the kids on a training program. She'll tell you, I'm not making this up. He had the kids on a training program, and he had Candace doing high-performance diving, and there, there was a chin-up bar in the basement, you know, and he would do one-handed pull-ups. But he was also very interested not only just in this. He was interested in, in science and astronomy and survival skills. He was not a, uh, a Renaissance man, but he was somebody that was curious about everything. And he, his motto was, your curiosity is your greatest gift. That's really affected me in researching him because I've decided I'll take this motto for myself. The problem for him was he had never experienced being condemned covertly because the public still thought and he thought and anyone who really was new, like a boast, astronaut trainer, they all knew that he was still the hero. He was the one that really succeeded. He was the first human being to control a spacecraft for a manual re-entry. He did that. And that's been overlooked and said, well, you know, he screwed it up. No, he didn't screw it up. He recovered from an uh, otherwise a more catastrophic situation. Mm. So he was an unusual person, but extremely curious. I think to the point where the kids, if people ask their father about or show them something, and then he became curious about that. They'd roll their eyes because they knew that their father might be talking to this person for a long time because he loves to learn about whatever skill you had. If you were a concert pianist, he's like, oh, want to know about that. (laughs) That was a social trick Hmm. of his, so we wouldn't have to talk about himself. Okay. Another person that we think is unfairly portrayed in several movies and TV shows is Breen Carpenter, Scott's wife your mother, uh, what was her character really like? You know, many shows and movies focus solely on her appearance, you know, very beautiful woman, but they don't adequately show that she too was very intelligent and strong. Reen. Reen is a big topic. This is not to say she had a complex personality, but that it's a complex thing to be Reen in her time, to be both beautiful and brilliant while navigating the patriarchy in the U.S. Navy. She managed being Reen by being smarter than everyone in the room, and she managed being smarter than everyone in the room by reading. She read everything. She had been reading everything since she was 10. The Chicago Tribune when she was a girl, Time Magazine, Fairy Tales, Greek Myth, Colliers, all the magazines, then the Times and the Post, later on when we were stationed on the East Coast with my dad, fiction, nonfiction books, European and American military history, Criticism, Vogue, Dress Pattern Books, Poetry, 
She mastered aircraft recognition using the U.S. Navy guides. As my dad studied at Pensacola, she quizzed him. She was always sober, didn't drink, didn't smoke. Her one vice, perhaps, a sharp tongue. She could discuss French Regency furniture with Jackie Kennedy and civil rights with the black leaders she met. In social situations during the Navy and NASA years, she understood that her appearance, much commented on at the time and since then in books, TV scripts, and movies, was a sharp weapon. She softened it with gentle, mocking humor and quick asides that put people on notice. She neutralized mansplainers with puzzling replies. Captain Busby, I have learned something from you today. She and my dad were married for 23 years and had five kids together. She wanted to serve the country and help to rebuild the world after a devastating world war. She was marked by the deaths of her high school classmates. She mourned in the auditorium at the Boulder High Gym. And she served as half of a career Navy couple during the Korean War, during the McCarthy years, Project Mercury, which finally afforded her a stage she could fill with her camaraderie, writing, an example for other women emerging mid-20th century. At heart, though, she was a bright Methodist schoolgirl from Clinton, Iowa, and then from Boulder, Colorado. She loved both Iowa and Colorado. She majored in history at CU Boulder, a complete and utter star classroom church choir among friends and in school plays. My dad was in awe of her talent. Yes, she could sing, she could write, but most of all, Emily, Reen was a patriot. Really, as I understand her now, she was a bit of a lefty, an FDR Dem. She fought for a more democratic America every day, and she championed civil rights. Of course, she was busy raising four children, but she wove her political values into every aspect of our education at home. She asked us to be proud of our country and to be proud that we could represent our country as her children. That was one of her core values, really, service to country at home in the community. Was she beautiful? Could she sing? Could she write? Yes, she was all that. But first of all, she was a patriot. That's really fascinating. Oh, awesome. That's really fascinating. Well, I have a little dust in my eye. I apologize. So I'm going to pivot. I love Reen. I, I'll be honest. I've sort of, uh, I, I love her. I'm I'm honestly obsessed with her. So I thought she, she was everything. She was a star. As yeah, you said. I, I'm obsessed with her too. And I say her name every day. I just say it out loud. Reen. Oh gosh. Okay. I'm going to pivot back so you've talked about the myths you've been able to get you you both have been able to get to the bottom of so let's talk about research where are you all managing to find a lot of this information you know you've talked about 
And has there been any resistance to you guys finding materials or has it been kind of a smooth journey? I'll, I'll set Danny up on this because the research really is his. I told a story with with a parent at either elbow and uh, with Reen's phenomenal memory. And you call people up and I had this gift and people say, oh, you're Reen's daughter. Let me tell you everything. Oh, you're Scott's daughter. Let me tell you everything. So the goodwill that I encountered everywhere I went asking for what they remembered was a trip. But that was 20 years ago. And I'm basically writing a family memoir that my dad and then my mother went over with a fine tooth comb. So I wrote a first draft and they corrected everything. Because I, I had to ask my dad what the three axes were. And he, that was three hours sitting in his office. Well, pitch <laughs> and roll. And it's kind of like this. You know, I'm a history major. What do I know? <laughs> I guess to answer your questions, Emily, where, you know, where are we finding this stuff? Well, I'm, I'm a good writer, but I'm a great researcher. So, I, you know, I'll, I'll say it that way. Um, and... So I'm used to, to digging and I love it. I love finding things out that are not known or poorly known. And, but you know, the, the problem with that is it takes time, but we've spent three years. And so you follow all the clues and the traces of others that say that they might have something. So, um, most recently, um, uh, I have a researcher that's working for me at the national archives in Fort Worth. NASA archives and he just copied 8,000 pages for me of stuff associated with MA7 and Mercury in general. So I haven't even looked through this, but there's, <laughs> there's a lot coming. And then I found a lot by just following my nose in terms of finding people that are still living and interviewing them. Like I've interviewed Bob Bose maybe a dozen times, absolutely fascinating person and had his advanced age and incredible memory for those times and one where I keep finding things where I say, oh, that can't be right. And then later on, I found, oh, in fact, he is right. Bob was right exactly about the number and how the number of astronauts changed and all this. He was, he's right about, and he is so understated. So anyway, there are interviews and then I've located the Project Mercury secretary from Langley, Nancy Lowe. Wow. And that's been amazing too, because a completely different low level you a project mercury from the woman who was uh secretary to them and their antics i'm forgetting the tom wolf papers so the estate of tom wolf uh, has allowed us full access to tom wolf's papers associated with the right oh, wow. stuff and wow most people say all oh, the right stuff what a nice book it's amazing that he made all that stuff up about uh project mercury and that some of it seems like it might be you know have something to do with reality I'm here to tell you that most of it is reality. And not only that is based on copious interviews he had that I now have. Unfortunately, one of Wolf's research methods was that he used Greg shorthand when the speaker started speaking quickly. I don't read Greg shorthand, <laughs> but guess what? Nancy Lowe, the Project Mercury secretary, reads and writes Greg shorthand. And she wow. was hired because of her speed of, of taking shorthand and typing. Wow. Yeah, she's one of the very earliest wow. members of the space test group, hired right out of post in, uh, high school. 
into this. And she told her brother, oh, yeah, I just got interviewed at Langley for this job where they're going to try to launch a person into space. And her brother says, I think you should keep looking for a new job. <laughs> <laughs> and so she told me, she said, I ignored him, which I always did. <laughs> <laughs> and then later on, years later, he told her that he was wrong about that. And that had actually been a good decision. So anyway, I've interviewed people and I find archives all over the place. One of the things that is kind of a, not a side story, but an important story for Aurora is what happened with the Slayton affair. And Chris knows that we spent weeks and weeks and weeks on this particular issue. And, and I don't think we have time to fully go into it. I realized that somebody had, had to be keeping the secret of Slayton's problem. And I identified that that must be Dr. Bill Douglas. And then Douglas had passed on the family. I located them in Albuquerque. They were willing to share the, the papers of Dr. Douglas before they were auctioned off. And so I went out there this last year. Incredible stuff. And, and, and of course, it's exactly as we expected. And it, it's actually worse for me. I, I was thinking, well, he'll know about the secret. But no, he was really actively keeping the secret. He was really obsessed with returning D. Slayton to flight status. And it, it well, it goes on. So this is another story. It's a major part of the story for me. Uh, and really affects everything about what happened to uh, Carpenter, I think, because yep. uh, you have to realize the grounding of Slayton had to create some bad feeling relative to Carpenter coming in yeah. because there could not have been two more different astronauts of the seven than Slayton and Carpenter. Slayton, who said he wanted rudder pedals, and Carpenter, who said that's like battleship thinking in World War II, where I have a new craft in a new world, it should have a new control system. So they really were very different people. And Slayton was engineering first, now, and last. And Carpenter was engineering, very important, but exploring and science, equally important. But relative to resistance in, from archives, I've been worried about it relative to the Slayton affair, but because I'm dealing with the cardiologist at, in Houston with NASA now. And I won't name him because I don't want to give myself in more trouble or get him in trouble. But anyway, so far, no problem. I have actually confessed to him my concern about the fact that I'm going to out the story and I am not really wanting to. It just has to be come up that way, which is that NASA had a cover up associated with the Slayton affair and it went, it was quite active and it went on. And it had real ramifications to what happened in Mercury. And it also created bad feeling within the team of the seven. And it was actually, there's Nancy Lowe looks at it as that was a split. They were never the Bobsy twins or the Boy Scouts or whatever you would say about the seven. They were never like that. It created the schism that uh, is apparent after the Slayton affair. But that the NASA, the, the cardiologist is like, oh, well, uh, no, I'm not opposed to this. We should make sure this doesn't happen again. You know, his, that's his perspective currently. And that's fine for me. Because remember, in Mercury, no one knew anything in 1959. No human being had ever been in space. There was a large group of doctors who believed that you would have severe problems in orbit and weightlessness. And 
now, of course, we say, oh, yeah, no, don't worry about that. You can stay at orbit for a year. You'll be all right. But no one knew that then. There were doctors who said that your eyes would lose shape after about five minutes. You'd be in excruciating pain and unable to see instruments or do anything. You'd be incapacitated. So in Mercury, there was the retrofire, retrofire sequence was set up so that it was automatic. You could use a fist, punch it, and you were going to come down as soon as it could put you down. John Glenn carried an ampule of morphine in his, on his right knee on his suit, and you were to in self-inject yourself and hope you made it. That was the idea. Because the Russians were sharing nothing. Anyway, I'll stop there. But no one knew anything. That's absolutely crazy, isn't it? Chris, I, obviously, I, I'm a big fan of uh, of, of the first book i love it i've got a copy up here which i i've read i must have read about three times big fan so what really is 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 different from that book to this new book uh i know that was probably more of a detailed account of, of his life than than this one was more mission focused um but uh, when, when are we likely to see aurora as well boy wouldn't i like to know yeah <laughs> so you're talking about for spacious skies yeah yeah, happy 20th anniversary for that book. I want to mention that the book proposal was a lot different from the book that actually came out because I fell in love with the sort of ancestral story of the Carpenters and and the previous family's Colorado history, pioneering, all of these things that my mother articulated with Loudon Wainwright in uh, the Life magazine coverage. It, my dad's people were pioneers. Dad is a fifth-generation Coloradan uh, with roots in uh, colonial New England. So it's a wonderful American story. I was telling it, and I thought, well, I'll have, I'll have a chapter on the flight, and then we'll talk about the Sea Lab project. But two terrible things happened to me in 1999, and was it 2001? It was 2001. Two books came out while I was finishing the first draft of the book. The first book that came out was called The Race, and that was written by a Houston-area reporter who'd covered the space program for The Chronicle. We'd worked with Schefter on his tone and accuracy, but we didn't get that chance with Chris Kraft's book, that second terrible thing. His memoir came out and improbably devoted an entire chapter to my dad. It was a one-two punch, those books. Turns out Schefter was the ghostwriter for Kraft's book. You can find him on the copyright page of Flight as co-author. And that was that was at the end of the 20, 20th century. And it got worse as the 21st century began. The New York Times had, what's his name? Henry S.F. Cooper, who'd covered science for the New Yorker. Well, the review had no clue. We responded to the Times with a letter to the editor. Anyway, I was a wreck. I had to finish writing the book and meanwhile had to be scraped off the floor every morning so I could sit with my laptop and finish writing. This inexplicable vitriol, it was always inexplicable to me, 
um, but Tom Wolfe surfaced it in the right stuff, had been in stealth mode for decades. And now it's like the knives were out with the two books, so I really had to bear down now and devote whole chapters to the plight. I had to respond. My dad had to respond, but the effort took a year off my writing, and the publisher was clamoring for the manuscript. That setback from the, really it was an assault on the Carpenter family, and I didn't have the technological background or the research time. I just had a working theory of the flight. Nothing new, really, but it was from Dad, and it was rooted in his own account of his space flight. So that's the difference in the two books, mine for Spacious Skies and Danny Parker's Aurora between my family memoir and its working theory and Danny's account, which expounds on a whole host of stuff we didn't know when we were writing the book. Danny writes more about the last-minute grounding of Deke, more about the condition of Capsule 18, more about the malfunctions, and there's much more about the personnel turmoil at NASA. The entire episode associated with Kraft and his reaction and then how this his campaign. One of the things in, in the response to the New York Times that Chris mentioned was, this fight occurred a long time ago. Why is Kraft still punching? What was the impetus for him to just keep after this issue? My own perspective is that it was associated with a way of boosting his ego by condemning others for the difficulty he had during the flight of being unhappy with uh, uh, what he viewed as insubordination. And he also uh, claimed that, that he had evidence that Harper Carpenter panicked. It. As I show in the book, this is exactly wrong, exactly backwards. You can find evidence for panic perhaps elsewhere, but not for Carpenter's flight. And Carpenter was completely relaxed and in control relative to all that. Relative to the writing, uh, for Spacious Skies Remains, um, I think in terms of the astronauts' memoirs, one of the very best, I think, you can say, Moth Collins, Carrying the Fire, probably another extraordinary book. And I'm working to make sure that this one is not an embarrassment. I, I don't think it will be. I will certainly uh, show a lot of things that people have never thought or suspected. And certainly the Mercury 7 will not appear like a boys club at all. So there are a lot of things that I've learned that will be uh, different than things that that Chris had available, certainly about the technical details, but also the interpersonal as well. So I've dug a lot on that. And then when it will be available, my strategy as a writer is to tackle the most difficult parts first. And so I'm following that. And so I'm leaving the easiest chapters for next summer. Uh, this summer, I dealt with the chapters on selection. And I have a lot of new information that no one's ever seen because I've got this the scoring for all the candidates, at both at Lovelace and at uh, Wright-Patterson, and also the comments made by the examiner. So this is, was very involved, but the book will eventually come out, and I think there will be some reaction, I think, from some people who say, oh my God, you have that available, you learned that, you shouldn't have that available. I'm sorry, I do. I do have it available, and it's going to come out. One thing that Chris told you, though, that's really important for a writer, she told you that, that for Spacious Skies Escape, 
her clutches. She had it and she knew what it was going to be. And then it said, no, I'm going to be something else. Because if you're <laughs> right, the story has a life of its own. So Aurora was like a, a thing or a being, whatever you want to call it. And it's, it's grabbed me. So it's telling itself. And I'm just mm -hmm. kind of described, you know, I'm the one who's taking it down. And then you, you say, well, I hope you know what you're doing. It's really a thrill working on it because it is, as Dave suggested, really inspiring. And Carpenter's life, and then even the tragedy of what happens with him relative to the flight, it has a lot to teach us. So, so in some ways, this is maybe not the very best, but our mistakes or things that go wrong really have something to teach. And Aurora, I think, really has something to teach even for today, and especially about the importance of science, exploration, and I'll use the word wonder relative mm. to space exploration today. Those are the ingredients that we lost and that were lost with Aurora when the engineers won in the fateful meeting after Carpenter's flight that Chris Kraft ran, where he said, you know, there's not going to be no more fun. It's all going to be engineering. No one's going to be amazed by anything. <laughs> and Gus Grissom said, and, and, and Deke Slayton, they bought off on the terminal was going to be used for everything. How's your situation in the flight? Not at all. What is that telling you? Nothing. So anyway, Aurora will reintroduce the reader to the, uh, the sense of wonder associated with spaceflight, which it should be there. It should be there today. If we had it there today, it would be as John Glenn saw it. It would be something where all young kids would say, that's what I want to do. I want to be an explorer. Yeah. I want to be out there finding, you know, the beer can on Mars or whatever it would be. I want to inspire. Right. Yeah, exactly. I want to inspire with my, mm -hmm. with my courage, with my example, with my aspiration. That's right. And I want to be inspired. So therefore I'm probably the perfect customer for your book. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to, can't wait to read it. It's going to be awesome. Absolutely. There will be disturbing things. So, you know, I, I won't tell you there won't. So there will be some things that you won't. You may not be so, ha but you know, we're talking about real human life. So no, I understand. I, I, I think the human factors in spaceflight also needs to be discussed as well, negative and positive. I think there's a lot to be explored on this particular mission in this particular point in time of the human factors, both positive and negative, both anti and you know what I'm saying? So yeah, I'm, a, I'm excited to, I'm excited to read this and to get sort of the real story on it versus some of the other things that I've read that, yeah. Well, there's so many um, things turn on small events. Like one of the things that I found, and this isn't very hard to find, but was that uh, Robert F. Kennedy was looking at making John Glenn the head of NASA uh, for Kennedy's second term. And that would have changed everything. Wow. Wow. That ended with Oswald's bullet. So everything changed after that but wow we can we can try to see what we can learn about great people and great events and the possibility for inspiration today through trouble that we've had past so that's my view at this point absolutely well thank you both so much for your time this has been a wonderful wonderful interview and and danny danny thank you for sharing your your research with us uh that you've been uncovering over the last three years 
the stuff that you've been sending through to us is really I, I can't believe what I'm reading a lot of the time. Like, what? That what? Yeah, there's a lot of crazy stuff, right, Dave? It's, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I thought I knew this story. Like, I'll I'll be honest. I'm I'm I'll be I'm kind of cocky. I'm, oh yeah, I know this story. I'm finding stuff out that I just had no idea about, and I'm, my mind is just Emily, mine too. We're getting answers to questions that no one's ever really asked before because you just didn't think the answer was ever going to be there. And you found the answer. And I think that's what's really interesting is, is, oh, hang on, that conversation actually took place. There's evidence of it. You assume that we're far enough away from it now that we never find the truth behind. Oh, how, I, wonder how, I wonder how the term astronaut came about. But, but, then, but then you can find it. <laughs> I found it. And Bob, those three members, they were put in front of yeah. the chalkboard. He and Bill Augerson and Alan Gamble and said, you guys, you're going to stay here until you figure out what we're going to call these space guides. So amazing. <laughs> thank you for, for spending this much time with us. We've really enjoyed it. A pleasure. Uh, yes, and, thank and, you. And good luck with finishing the book. And we can't wait to read it. And we'll, as soon as it comes out, we'll, we'll have you on again, I'm sure. Absolutely. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, guys. I'm sure Emily and I have covered our thoughts on this back on episode 96 when we discussed we, when we discussed this mission before. And it's the first time we revisited something, but you can't not revisit something when you've got the daughter of the astronaut and this new research that's come to life that, that Danny is working his way through and finding out so much stuff. We, you kind of have to revisit it. Yes. And I can't wait for this book. I think it's going to be amazing. It's going to be really eye-opening. I think yes. Danny's right. Some people might not like what is said. It may feel like someone's trying to rewrite history 60 years on, but I don't I don't see it that way. I see it as yeah. finding the correct version of history and figuring out exactly how things happened. Yeah. With any history book, there's always going to be a little bit of a hyperbole or, you know, just fluffing things up a little bit in this in the process of writing a prose but some of what is out there is just plain wrong and i i hope that this becomes well read and well appreciated for setting the record straight on how things happened that's my thoughts on it absolutely and yeah i've really got only one thing to say you know i there's this phrase and it's a cliche now but there's always that phrase you know there's two sides to every story you know and i'm sure people will want to see it that way but i don't believe that i believe there's usually one side and then there's the truth you know and i think that's what we're going to see with this book what you've been told about certain things and then there's what really happened and i think it speaks to both chris and danny the research that they're doing we're going to find out what was really happening and the answer is simple and complex at the same time I just can't wait till it comes out, man. It's going to be a blockbuster. And I'm really looking forward to this book. Yeah. It's going to be a good one. So that's really all I've got. Yeah. Hopefully we'll still be doing this by the time it comes out. It's going to be a long project. You got that many pages, 8,000 pages. He said he had copied recently from, uh, yes. from the archives. I mean, that's just an insane amount of stuff to have to go through. It's a lot but of isn't work. Isn't it great that someone is doing that? Yes. And what are other people doing when they've written their books? Why are they not? Maybe they have gone through a lot of pages, but there's been a lot of books written about Mercury. And I can't imagine there's many that would have been as well-researched as this one. I apologize if I've 
upset someone who's written a book about Mercury who's done the same amount of research. But, uh, you know, we, we speak to someone like George Leopold, who's does an incredible amount of research. His yeah. Gus Brussenbrook is, is fantastic in the book they're working on Apollo 1. And then you talk to Danny in, in the amount of research he's doing for this. I love that. That's what I want. That's what yeah. I want it to be based on the original exactly. documentation as well. Not the research being, oh, I read a book that said this. Well, yeah, but that could be based on a, a, exactly. an incorrect truth and an incorrect truth and an incorrect truth. Like when you look at references when within books, sometimes you're like, hang on a moment, you're based it on that account? Yeah. Ooh, not Which sure. is flawed. So obviously I, th- I do feel like it's really important that we debunk the myth that Carpenter was to blame for this. And as we when we mentioned it, when we recorded about this before, and obviously in this interview, Chris Craft is the main perpetrator of these myths yes. right? and, and his book. And it's such a shame because I've got so much respect for Chris Craft and yeah. what he achieved and what he did and his role within the early space program, which is so important. And it's difficult to think of anyone who could have done that like he did. And to have that alongside the fact that I know he... He was petty. He was petty. And, and yeah, I, I I struggle with that. But I have to always remind myself that people are people and make mistakes. Yep. And <laughs> there's so many people I've got grudges with that I could probably let go. And yeah, so exactly. On and so yeah, forth. I'm the same so, way. <laughs> uh, I, you know, the, Chris Craft isn't here anymore to answer answer to this, and so it's it, it it feels sometimes when we lay into him about this, I sometimes feel like are we being a bit harsh? But at the end of the day, my grudges don't affect the history of spaceflight. Exactly. And yeah, especially those early days, which are going to be talked about for years. And if we're gonna, if in 300 years time, people are talking about what happened on the fourth American space flight, which is highly possible they might be talking about that. I think it's important yeah. that the, the record is correct. Um, so in that case, I do want to say Chris Craft was wrong there. He was wrong. And yeah. it, it's, similarly, when we when we talk about this in this episode, you know, you, you can criticise Deke Slayton and the fact that he didn't want to fly a science mission and that he wasn't as interested in that. But I love Deke Slayton. You can't yeah, have exactly. a space program as we had it without Deke Slayton. And again, it's that whole thing of, you know, let's just tell the story correctly. If we have to criticise one of our heroes in the process, we have to criticise one of our heroes yeah. in the process. I think that's a, a responsible thing to do in this circumstance. I just want to point out that just because we're, we're saying, in this episode, we're highlighting Scott Carpenter and, and talking about him and his accomplishments and within that we have to criticise them, it doesn't mean we don't like Deke Slayton. It doesn't mean we don't like Chris Craft. It just means yeah. in this instance, they made some errors um, and people around them may have made some errors in how they treated Scott Carpenter. And I think yeah. we shouldn't shy away from saying that. Absolutely. I I totally agree. As much as I look up to uh, Chris Craft, I think he was wrong here. He was absolutely yeah. wrong in this situation. That doesn't mean I don't, Still, ad- I, I still admire him and I still respect a lot of his decisions, but I feel like in this case, it was kind of a personal thing. And I, I say him with what you said, basically. We're not trying to drag down Deke Slayton or Chris Kraft. We're just trying to tell the truth here. We're just trying to say what actually happened versus, you know, maybe somebody's opinion of what happened. That's all. Yeah, absolutely. As always, 
details in the show notes of, of how to follow Danny and Chris on social media. And, and as we said, when that book is is released, when we've got more information, we will definitely be letting you know all about it. It's no secret that space is hard, but finding space in things isn't. You can find the podcast on all major platforms. Okay, that's it for this week. As I said at the start, I'll be home next week, so we'll be able to do our What Caught Our Eye in Space This Month feature then. Thanks to all who continue to support us on Patreon. Please consider doing so if you haven't already. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash space and things to find out more. And thanks to all of you who continue to share the podcast on your social media pages or directly with your spaceflight loving friends. It really means a lot, but don't forget, in space, no one can hear you me. This has been the Space and Things Podcast. Thanks for listening. New episodes every Thursday.